Hey, online church family. We're so glad that you've joined us today. My name is Dan Lidstone, and I'm the creative pastor here at Connection Point. Well, we've been in a series called Greater Things, and in that series, our pastor, John Dickerson, has laid out a vision for where our church is going over the next two years. Here's the exciting part. A huge part of that vision involves you, our online family. All across the United States, we're seeing these digital hotspots popping up in different areas, but we see God especially energizing the Chicagoland area. Every week, we have over 600 people that join us just from the Chicagoland area. So we need to hear from you. We don't quite know who you are, but we would love to hear from you. So do us a favor, text the word Chicago to 317-350-1996. Just text us, we'll be in touch with you because we have some special things planned for you. Listen, if you're joining us from another area of the country, we still love you, we're still interested in hearing from you, and you can do this. You can fill out a connection card during the service today. Well, we're so glad that you've joined us today. We can't wait to see what God does. We believe he's gonna do greater things, and we're so glad that you're with us in that vision. Good morning. We welcome you in the worship center in the point online in the lobby we're just glad you could be here today let me ask you a question how many of you know anything about channel surfing <laughs> are you a professional like i am i'm getting better and better at it even now that i'm retired i really like it a lot now the problem the problem with this is psychologists tell us this is actually not good for us okay they say it decreases our attention span Okay. It increases isolation. You're into yourself a little bit more, and obviously you just can't watch anything for a few minutes. And so it's a very interesting thing. But the question is, because this has not changed my life or yours, why do we use it? You know why? It doesn't cost anything. And I'm all about free stuff and senior discounts, all right? And it really doesn't cost us a single thing. Unlike worship, you have come today to spend some time with God in worship. You've paid a price to do that. You've carved out some time to do it. If you're in the building here, you've, you've gone through a process of getting your children, uh, your students in their place and find a parking place. You're in your seat. You're catching your breath. Maybe it's been a really, really tough week for you, honestly. It's back to school week, so your list is really long in your head. You've just come back from vacation. You've got to recover from vacation. A lot of things can be going on. And so, I mean, to carve out time and come for worship, there's a cost involved, not just physically to put your body into a chair, but see, in real worship, you're giving a gift to God that's unlike any other time. I'm speaking now of this corporate hour, hour and 15 minutes you spend in worship with God. You're giving God the gift of sustained attention for this hour and 15 minutes. For the one time this week, the focus is not on you. Because, by the way, we say it's not about you. Oh, yeah, it is. Everything is always about me. Every one of us. We make decisions that fit into my situation. It is about what's going on with me. But for this hour, when we're worshiping in the right kind of way, it's not about me at all or you. It's all about God. And you give him the absolute attention for one time not to focus on yourself but to focus on him. That's worship. And when John asked me to kind of do to bat cleanup, I get this the second series in a row I've been asked to come and clean up. 
and so in other words, I'm doing the last week of the series. Uh, I was really excited to come and do this series on picking a hero from the Old Testament. I picked Isaiah. He's a hero to me because uh, this is a guy who uh, had some problems. He lived in a very uh, strong culture that was opposed to God, just like you and I do. He himself had a lot of mess. He'd made a lot of mistakes in his life. But he comes into the presence of God and it changes everything. And as a result of him coming face to face with God, he's a hero because even though he needed that messy grace that you and I need, when he came face to face with God, he found true mercy, forgiveness, and healing, and he found the purpose of his life. So I think that's a lesson we probably can learn together. So we're going to study Isaiah chapter 6 today, the first eight verses. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. You may have the U version on your iPhone. You can turn to that there if you'd like. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, that's okay. We always put the scriptures on the screen here. This production team spends a lot of time preparing. So with certain things we want to say and scriptures we put up here. So everybody can be studying. If you don't have a Bible and have never studied the Bible in your life, you get to sit around the table and study with us today. So let's just kind of dig in together and let's learn some lessons from him. And the Bible, by the way, is not a myth. It's not a fable. It's not a nice little collection of stories. It, it is a history book, particularly the Old Testament. And it's written in the context of history, as is much of the New Testament. And Isaiah chapter 6, or six uh, verse 1 reminds us of this. It begins, in the year King Uzziah died. You might write down 739 B.C. That's historically when this is taking place. You could look it up later. He was the king for uh, Judah for uh, 52 years. From the time he was 16 until he died at age 68, he was the king for 52 years. Now, as a nation, we have had 10 different presidents over a 52-year period of time. They had just had one. We've had 10. We've had presidents Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, H.W. Bush, Clinton, W. Bush, Obama, and Trump. They just had one leader. And Uzziah, next only to Solomon, was the most effective leader they ever had. He was a military uh, uh, genius financially. The economy was exploding. They were very powerful, had many victories militarily. He was a pretty good leader spiritually. He had a good run for 51 years. Did you know you can ruin your legacy in the last lap of your journey? Things don't go well for him at the end of his life. And so we're going to learn about that today to see what happened in the last turn along the way. His life ended very sadly. And so I want to give us all the big idea before we dig in today. Here's the big idea that I want you to take away. When your blessing increases and when you're seeking God, as you have done today, to spend some time here with God, when you seek God and when you connect with God, you will be blessed by God in some kind of way. And when your blessing increases, it either will make you more humble and more grateful, which brings you closer to God, or it will fill you up with pride, which causes you to drift away from God. Isn't that an interesting twist? How could that happen? When God has blessed your life, if you get off the track and think this is because of you, or you read your clippings, or the things you hear that you want to hear about yourself, you begin to have a sense of entitlement. Here's my resume, here's my record, and you rest on that, and you get off point. 
And that's exactly what happened to Uzziah. He has a sense of entitlement. After 51 years of leadership, uh, he became proud. And he struts into the temple of all things one day, and he does something that was a task that God had only assigned to the priests. The priests were the only ones who could do this in the temple. But he does what God had said only the priests were to do. And guess what? They tried to call him on it. They said, king, you can't do this. The king doesn't do this. 52 years? Huh? You don't tell me no. I'm the king, remember? And by the way, for five decades I've been the king, so you don't, you know, you don't tell me no. If I'm going to do it, it's what I'm going to do. In the middle of his tirade in the temple, the judgment of God came down on that man like lightning splitting a tree. Just like that leprosy broke out over his forehead, right in the middle of his fit. The judgment of God. Second Chronicles 26, 21 historically says King Uzziah had leprosy then until the day he died. A life of a wonderful legacy, but ended in shame because he relied on himself and took his eyes off God. But now he, he dies. Now understand, when a, a leader has been around a long time, you have your security in that leader when things have gone well financially, you're the most powerful nation that's around, and your things are going pretty good. But now that he's gone, there's a lot of panic. What's going to happen economically? What's going to happen for us politically as a nation here? And Assyria, by the way, was beginning to emerge as a superpower. Assyria began to knock off little nations here and there, so they're wondering what's going to happen to us. So there's a bit of a panic and a lot of anxiety going on. And so what do you do when your leader you relied on is gone? By the way, what do you do when, when what you have been relying on changes? What do you do when the person who's given you stability is suddenly gone from your life? What do you do? When your money, your job, your passion, your relationship that you've relied on so much suddenly either goes the wrong direction or you don't have it anymore. What do you do when everything you've been counting on starts to crumble? Um, what do you do? That's when we need to learn from Isaiah today as a hero. He did the right thing. He went into the presence of God. He was anxious like the rest of them. He was sinful like the rest of them and like us. But at least he went into the presence of God and it changed everything. Um, you know, whenever there's a change of leadership, it creates anxiety, doesn't it? Uh, whether that be a team sports team, uh, university president, a leadership in business, in a nation, or in a church. There's a little anxiety because you know, oh, that's going to mean some changes here. Now, I was here for over 31 years, as John said. And aren't you thankful I wasn't here 52 years? Can you say thank you, Jesus? <laughs> okay, well, but that's, that's a long time to be here. And I told the church in my last year here that succession was at least a three-year process. Some would say four-year process. That is the time when the new leader arrives. It's at least three more years of succession or transition that the church is going to go through. Inevitably, there are going to be some changes. It's called life. Would you raise your hands if you don't like change? I can solve it for you today. Pray that you die. You're welcome for that. <laughs> um, change 
It's called life. Tomorrow morning when you look into the mirror, you're going to go, I've never seen that before. I never thought that before. Life is about change. That's just what happens. And so when there's a change of leadership at any level, people come and go. There are always going to be changes. So as a church, the church has gone through some changes. It's going to go through some more changes, okay? But here's the good news that I bring you today. <laughs> uh, this church has had a very good succession. And a lot of churches and organizations don't. But the primary reason this church has had a good succession is everybody knew when I was here, you weren't coming in here to place your trust in me. Or if you watched me close enough, you were disappointed. You weren't coming here because you trust ultimately in John or any leader in this church. You come in here because you want to focus on God. You want to trust in God. And I can tell you there are a lot of things that have changed over the history of this church and will change. But one thing that will never change in this church is that our focus and our strength and our trust is in God. And we learn that from Isaiah right here. And so when change is on the front of your life, dig into Isaiah chapter 6 and learn in the year that King Uzziah died, when things started to change a little bit, there's some anxiety, he says this, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. On your outlines, let me suggest four lessons we can learn from him today. Here's the first one. The most consistent way to meet the Lord is in worship. And I'm speaking primarily here for our context of our corporate worship experience. You can worship God anytime, anyplace, 24-7. But I'm speaking about the places dedicated to the worship of God. He goes into the temple, the place of worship for God. You've come to this worship center to worship God. You've come to focus uh, and just be a part today, online perhaps, with this experience of connecting with God. And that's where you're most likely to hear from God. Isaiah came to clarity about the otherness of God, that God is not like us and we are not equal to God. See, if you're focusing on, on other people, you're not going to see this. But when you begin to focus on God, God, his otherness, He's way beyond us. Uh, it, he doesn't have the mess that we have. And so here he is. He comes before the Lord and he says he saw specifically the Lord. And when he sees the Lord, now may, by the way, he may have, he probably went into that temple hundreds of times, but for whatever reason, he saw him in a whole different way. You may have worshiped here hundreds of times. I pray today you maybe you'll see God in a way you've never seen him before. All of a sudden you get it. That's what happens to Isaiah. He comes into that temple in that setting, and he and the people of God were full of anxiety and fear and panic because of their security they thought was affected, that some human leader had changed. But he focuses on God because he realizes suddenly, oh, the human leaders are going to come and go, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it changes him as a result of that. A few years ago, I was able to go to the Indianapolis 500 and sit in the the pagoda in one of the suites. Thank you very much. <laughs> Only because I have a good buddy named Howard Brammer. <laughs> and he's pretty close friends with some of the, the family uh, who lead the uh, track. So I watched the race from the pagoda. 
And I mean those cars going directly underneath you. It's just, I mean, it was a spiritual experience. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but the, the experience for me was when the stealth bombers fly over. It's like a, a big bat. And it flies over. And it's amazing. 300,000 people, you can hear a pin drop. Right, just like this. And all of a sudden, without any notice, this big cheer breaks out. Not because we're ever going to ride in it or touch it, but this sense of awe and wonder. Now, you take that sense of awe and wonder and multiply it by infinity, and that's the kind of impact when you come into the presence of the holiness of God. It's a different thing when you come into the presence of God and you really see God. Now, notice a couple of things that are unique about this text. Verse 1, it says, he said, I saw the Lord, capital L, small case, O-R-D. Now, look at verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, all caps, almighty. Verse 5, the Lord, all caps, almighty. Is that a typo? What's the deal? Well, there are two entirely different Hebrew words. Lord, with the small case letters, is the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the the, the word for the title of God. He's sovereign. He's the ruler of the universe. That's his title. Okay? Adonai. But then we see the other word that's used here that's uniquely used, all caps. This is not about his title This is the word Yahweh, which is the personal name of God. Okay? See, the Hebrew people understood you had to respect and be in awe of the power of God. Remember God gave the ten, the top ten from Moses, the do-nots? And one of them was, don't misuse the name of the Lord your God in vain. And the Hebrew people, you know, when they wrote Yahweh, here's the way they wrote it. No vowels. They didn't even want to risk misspelling it or misusing his name in any way. They would not even write it out in that way. But yet we live in a world where we see a text 30 times a day that says OMG. Or we hear somebody say the words OMG and we don't even shrug anymore. We've come a long way, haven't we? They were in awe of who God really was. And his name was a very special thing, but his title was to be revered. But here's what changes everything. Isaiah doesn't just see the mighty, powerful, awesome God. He also meets for the first time this God who is personal. He says, let me give you my name here. See, Christianity is unique in that regard from other religions. Other religions teach a series of things you have to do to earn your standing with God. In Christianity, we understand Our doing good deeds will never get us into heaven. If it's based on the good we do, none of us are going. God is so holy, his nature he cannot tolerate in an intimate way, imperfection. One unforgiven sin is enough to keep you and I away from God. And that's why God has to see us just as if we'd never sinned. The words, biblical words, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. His grace forgives us, and so God doesn't even see our sin once we've come into him in a relationship. And he gives us this unique ability to call him this personal name called Father. 
Imagine. He said, yeah, I'm the ruler of heaven and earth, but I'm also your daddy. You're my son. You're my daughter. And Isaiah begins to grasp this, and he is now in a moment of worship. You know, we get hung up sometimes, the difference between titles and names. For years, people would, you know, come to the church and say to me, what do we call you? Call you reverend? Uh, We call you father? They call you pastor? I've always preferred your holiness. Um, Only my wife does that. Or at least she should. No, you all who know me know my answer to you when you ever ask me is, you know what, my mom likes Steve, I like it, let's go with that. Because you don't connect to a title, you connect to a person. And God comes and he says, yes, I made heaven and earth from nothing. I knit you together miraculously in your mother's womb, but you call me daddy. I've got your back. I've got your soul in the palm of my hand. And nobody can pluck me out of, nobody can take you out of my hand. You see, knowing God in this kind of way is a very powerful thing to know his name and something else just to know and experience his personal love for us. And so now we can worship God in his holiness. And holiness means you don't worship God in a casual way. Have you ever heard of casual worship? That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing. There should be no such, such thing as called casual worship. Now somebody might come to a worship service and be casual and flippant about it, but that's not worship. Worship is all in. A commitment to worship. Uh, Worship God in His holiness is not, well, you know, I'm going to come to corporate worship if if I've got time, if it fits my schedule, if it's convenient, if I like the style. That is not worshiping God in His holiness. In fact, worship has nothing to do with style. To worship God in His holiness doesn't even mean you have to be able to sing well. Okay? Heard about this woman that just loved to sing her little heart out. And she was in one of those churches where they had a choir and anybody could join the choir, so she joined the choir. And she would practice their song for the week whenever she'd be fixing dinner all week in the kitchen, just singing along. And her husband would walk out to the porch and just kind of sit on the porch till dinner was ready. And one day he came in for dinner and she said, You always leave when I'm cooking dinner when I'm singing you you don't like my singing do you he said no baby I love your singing he said I just don't want the neighbors to think I'm beating you (laughs) now you may it may sound like you're being beaten up when you sing I don't know but God said make a joyful noise it may mean more than noise and joy but that's all right it is not about your being on pitch it's about being God being on point And you're focusing on him and his holiness. Let me make it real clear. It means you don't drift in and out mentally with what's going on in worship. You don't channel surf. You don't read or sing words flippantly or casually. You're really mindful of what's going on. You understand how he draws you to that. Uh, During church, when you get to a boring part of the sermon, you don't look at your Facebook. You don't post. You don't check on your Twitter. You don't check out the Instagram. By the way, if you do those things in church, you go straight to hell. You know that? I mean, I'm just saying. That's all right. I mean, I'm sorry if I offended you. Sorry. 
I'm a prophet today, and by the way, I'm leaving, so that's all right. <laughs> there are advantages to being refired, okay? But the deal is, that's a little harsh. I shouldn't have said that. But the deal is, I would ask you this. Do you spend as much time trying to come into the presence of God as you do reading and posting on this thing? Do you really spend as much time trying to seek God as you do surfing? Hey, God calls us if we want to see and hear him to come into his presence looking to see him, and then it changes everything. And so Isaiah comes to a place of worship, and man, he comes there and he saw and he heard some things that just totally changed things. It caused for him the greatness of God to become crystal clear to him, okay? And he comes to that place where he's most likely to see God. By the way, I'm speaking of corporate worship here. Those of you who are watching Online Church, we're so glad you're watching. Online Church is a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful gift. Uh, you may live in such a location that you need that. You may not physically be able to come to the house uh, together to worship. You may be just researching. You're not sure about this faith thing. It's a, it's a, it feels safer to kind of watch that online. It's a wonderful gift. But can I just encourage you? The goal is to get to the place where you find yourself coming to the house of God with the people of God. That's the goal. Because we grow in a context of community and accountability. And then we're encouraged when we come together. And so you make sure you've done that. And by the way, way to go, you've done that today. Wherever you're watching this right now, you've carved out the time to do this. But I would also say, to those of you maybe, just because I know how summers can work. The Bible only talks one time that I know of in the New Testament. It says, don't get into this habit. It says, don't get into the habit of forsaking the assembly of the people of God. If you got out of the habit of coming to corporate worship in the summer, this is a good day to get right back in that habit and be all in and grow in the context of community that God can, can have you in the place where it's the most consistent way for you to see and hear God in worship. Here's lesson number two. Meeting God personally makes you think about yourself differently. Now see, I said earlier, you don't even think about yourself, but notice it's focusing on God first, but you're looking into God, and then now you see yourself in light of God. How does God see you? That's what your focus is. How does he want you to grow and become new and changed and different? Verse 2, that's what happened to Isaiah. Above him were seraphim. It's kind of, it was a level or a rank of the angels in heaven. And so there were the seraphim, and each with six wings. You see many pictures with angels with six wings? Here it is. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two... The two, they were flying. Kind of interesting to think about that. Seraphim are a kind of angel. I love the literal meaning of the seraphim. It means blazing ones. Blazing ones. When they show up, bam, you know God has shown up. Very special task. So they arrive, and I mean Isaiah knows God is present. Now, why the six wings? What's that about? Old Testament scholars tell us 
two of the wings, they covered their eyes. Why? Because looking at God is like looking into the sun. Not even the angels can look onto the face and the presence and the awesomeness of God. And with two, they covered their feet. That's the idea of inhumility. Um, it means when you come for worship, don't dress in such a way to draw attention to yourself. Don't act in such a way so as to draw attention to yourself. You make sure when you're coming, you come in humility so people are drawn to God and not you. And the third thing he does, he says, with their wings so they can fly. Don't you wish you could fly? Oh, man. Some of you have seen me drive. You thought I did fly. <laughs> well, we don't get to fly. But they could because God said, bam, I want you there. They could fly and do anything quickly. Very purposeful. So verse 3 continues, and they were, they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. See, all worship songs are not songs to God. Sometimes they're songs to each other, reminding each other. So they're singing antiphonally. You know what that is? It's like if half of this room, half of the point we're singing to the other half, and you were saying to each other, the Lord is holy, holy, holy. The Lord is holy, holy, holy. And you're saying it back and forth to each other. Can you imagine that temple? He sees, here's the angels. The Lord is holy, holy, holy. And it just rings with the power of who God is. And he just falls on his face before God. You see those, those words, holy, 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 is a very powerful emphasis in the Bible. Uh, in English, when we want to emphasize something, we underline it capitalize it, italicize it, what they would do is repeat something, okay? So God's holiness, now note this, this is the only trait of God that is given this kind of emphasis in the Bible. Now think about this. God is never referred to as awesome, awesome, awesome. He's not referred to ever as love, love, love. Just, just, just. He's not referred to as gracious, gracious, gracious. Though he is all of those things. But the deal is, he is referred to as holy, holy, holy. Do you know there is a group called the Hymn Society of the United States and Canada? And they have an annual conference. I received just this week the results of their conference meeting in Dallas uh, within the last month. Through Facebook, this Hymn Society voted on the greatest hymn of all time this year. You know what they selected? I thought it was going to be Amazing Grace or maybe How Great Thou Art, but it was Holy, Holy, Holy. And I started thinking, looking at the verses a little bit. One of the verses, listen very carefully, one of the verses is kind of mysterious sounding, but it's so on point. It says, Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. We live in a world that's so dark and our sin sometimes is so pronounced, it's hard to see God. You ever watch the news? Feel like it's hard to see God? You see, the good news is the world may change a lot. The news may change a lot. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing in our culture will ever change the fact that God is holy holy, holy. And he gives us that same blessing. When we call on his name, amazing, now watch this, he actually sets you apart for holiness. 
God says we're to be holy as he is holy. We do not reach that complete holiness like him until we're with him, it says, and then we'll be like him and we'll see him as he is. What we go through now is called a forget progressive, uh, hopefully a progressive holiness process. You need to become more and more like the Lord, hopefully more so this year than last year. More so the next year than the next year. It's a growing process of becoming like him. And he sets us apart for that. I love the word holy itself. The root word for holy does mean that. It means to cut. It's to separate. And the Lord is he's set apart from us. We're kind of like him, but he didn't have the mess that we have. Okay? He has none of our flaws. But yet he sets us apart. He calls us holy and forgiven. And we remember that we have this sense of the holiness of God. Now look, this gets really fun in verse 4. Imagine, put yourself in his sandals. Look at this. At the sound of their voices, then the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple of God was filled with smoke. Did you know they had fog machines in the Old Testament? (laughs) Uh, Probably not. But the deal is, they visibly could see the presence of God. And so the place shook, and I'm sure Isaiah shook. I have no doubt he's on his face at this point. As the seraphim are singing about the holiness of God in that temple, he's drawn to God. He knows the truth. And by the way, what he sees first when he sees how awesome God is, is how sinful he is. How much distance there is between him and God. And he knows he's unholy. He knows he's sinful. He knows, I've made a lot of mistakes. I messed up over and over again. And his heart was broken in worship, in grief. I mean, grief. See verse 5, the first thing he says, woe is me. Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. But today my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That word woe, that's an expression of judgment. Now think about this. In the New Testament, Jesus later would pronounce seven woes on the Pharisees. You know who the Pharisees were? The religious people. They thought they followed God's laws so that they were better than other people. When you drive home today, do you look at your neighbor who's outside, who's not been to church today, as a pagan Is there an uppityness about boys? Too bad they're not like us. That's called hypocrisy. God says, no, you need to see them as unholy and broken just as you were and would be without me. And don't you ever lose your heart for that person who's far from me. And Isaiah begins to understand the holiness of God And suddenly he realizes, by the way, not only are you holy, God, but I am so sinful. I've done and said some things, God, that could actually probably have kept some people from hearing you. See, the Pharisees were so judgmental, they were keeping people from God. You ever thought about the way you've lived in such a way that perhaps you could have ever done something that actually became an obstacle to keep people from God? He feels that sense of grief, and he just says, God, I'm so sorry for that. And he's a hero to me because he gets it. He's just like you and me until he sees the holiness of God. And as hard as this is for Isaiah, here's the truth. No one, okay, no one but no one can really ever get connected to the Lord until they realize they are spiritually lost. But everybody kind of like really 
pay attention now, particularly now. Never in my lifetime have we needed this more than today. There's a temptation today to kind of downplay the sin thing and lift up the encouragement thing. I'm all about cheering you on and positivity. But positivity, you do not drift into the kingdom of God. It does not work like that. We become broken over our condition. We're desperate for God. We surrender to him and his holiness. And then we understand, I do not measure up, and there's no way I'm getting there apart from you. Romans 3.23 says, for all, when you say the word all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when we get it, you get the good news. Thanks for not walking out during the second lesson. That was a hard lesson. I said this to say this. Here's the third lesson. It's my favorite. It's the good news. Can you imagine that our holy God is willing to forgive unholy people like Isaiah and you and me? Can you believe that? God loves Isaiah too much to leave him overwhelmed by his sinfulness. And so he leads Isaiah through this painful process, confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Uh, Today, I do not want you, we do not want you to leave today with your head down about how bad you are. No, you need to leave being set free because his, his grace is greater than your mess. See verse 5, one of the seraphim flew to me, he says, with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. He's putting into words a painful process of repentance, okay? Verse 7, and with the, the live coal... He touched my mouth and he says, see this, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. Anybody ever approach your mouth with a live coal? Do you think you'd just kind of stand there casually and change the channel? I don't think so. No, that would hurt. There's sting and pain in true repentance and confession. You don't get the cleansing without the pain. I say this because sometimes people think that grace means I never have to feel the pain of the wrong in my life. But no, to clarify, the goal of God's grace is not to spare us from pain. It's to redeem our character. Daryl Strawberry was an incredible baseball player, home run hitter. He played for the Mets, the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Giants, four World Series rings. He made $30 million in his career. He snorted every dollar up his nose with cocaine. He was $3 million in debt when he retired. He went from a mansion in Rancho Mirage, California, to the point of death in a crack house because of alcohol and drugs that had wrecked his life. But guess what? Somebody brought brought him into the presence of God. He met God face to face. He was broken over his sin. He thought he was hopeless. But he sought the grace of Christ. His sins were forgiven. Became a Christian. And today, he's a full-time pastor. He's spoken to a lot of my friends' churches, telling his story. And he funds alcohol and drug rehab centers all over the country, helping people meet Jesus face to face. Now, to get to that place, he went through some real pain, confession, in the process of forgiveness. But then he got some freedom and peace. 
You know what happened? See, his destructive behavior was a result of his childhood. His father was an alcoholic, a violent alcoholic. And his dad was so violent, one time he came into the house and he said, I never remember my dad hugging me or saying he loved me, but I remember him whipping me with extension cords and punching me. And then one night he came in, he grabbed a shotgun, he said he was going to shoot everybody in the house, all the kids and my mom. But my mom had wisely taken the bullets out of the shotgun. And my brother and I finally had had it. I was 13 years old, he said. My brother grabbed a butcher knife and I grabbed a frying pan. And I'm telling you, if he'd have taken one more step toward us, we were going to kill him. But my mom stepped in the middle of all that. And my mom kicked him out of the house. And he said that uh, I just wrote my dad out of my life from that point on. Fast forward years later now as a pastor. He was asked to come and speak to a men's conference. He's working on his message. As he's preparing, he senses God saying to him, you need to go see your dad and repent. You need to ask your dad to forgive you for dismissing him from your life. Lord, really? He beat me. He dragged my mom through the street. He tried to destroy us. I don't, God, I don't think I can do that. Uh, by the way, in the process, he heard God say to him, how dare you refuse to forgive your dad in light of all that I've forgiven of you? And so how's he going to respond? Because have you learned yet arguing with God is not a smart thing to do? God is never wrong about you. He knows exactly what you need. And when God tells us what he wants us to do, we, he gives us a choice. We can choose to obey him or disobey him. He can't negotiate because he's omniscient. He knows everything. But we get a choice. And Daryl knew it. He said, Lord, I don't see how, but okay, Lord, I'll, I'll try. And so he started driving his car down to Los Angeles, scared to death. Drove him to the hospital where uh, his dad was. He went into the room where his dad was in a hospital bed, and he got forward that, Dad, I'm so sorry. And he broke down, and his head fell on his dad's lap like he was three years old. He said, Dad, I was so wrong to cut you out of my life during my career. He said, Dad, would you forgive me? His dad said, Yes. Daryl said he had the strongest impression then he should try to leave his dad to the Lord. He said, Dad, you can see I'm different, right? Only Jesus could do this. He said, yeah. He said, Dad, would you, like, would you like to come to know Jesus Christ? He said, yes, I would. And when Daryl tells this story, the deal is he learned that forgiveness is not just a gift that we receive. This is a gift that we can give. And then we, re we receive even more. You understand, when he asked for his dad's forgiveness, all the hate he, he still had for his dad and many people, it was washed away. But the first time he walked out of that hospital, I mean, all the pain, all the stuff on his shoulders was gone. It was total freedom. And Isaiah had the same experience. He walks in with all his anxiety and everybody's in grief, and everybody's afraid, and he walks out of that temple. He walked in an unholy man in an unholy culture, and he meets the holy God, and he walks out of there 
receiving a love and a mercy and a forgiveness that he does not deserve. But he walks out of there a changed person. And the same thing can happen to you today. It's no exaggeration. You really are just that one serious decision away from being set free from all the stuff that you dragged in here with you today. Because see, there's one more very short lesson Isaiah learned, and that is God's forgiveness always precedes God's invitation. God didn't finish with you. See, here's what happens. Verse 8, then Isaiah cannot believe this. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who's us? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What's he saying? Isaiah, I want you to go to some unholy people out there. They need to know what I've told you today. Will you go? Isaiah, will you go out there and deliver this message to this world and culture so far from God for me? And God, I believe right now, is saying to you, there's somebody I want to reach out there that's in your world. You probably could even say the name right now. They are so isolated. They work where you work. They live in your neighborhood. They're going to be in your class this week. When God taps you on the shoulder, will you hear him saying, will you love them for me? Will you reach out to them in my name? Will you show somebody that they too can experience my grace? Uh, who in your life, you're so fortunate to be a part of this church family because the next nine weeks, think about this today. Who in your life needs to hear this week from you? It's never too late. It's never too late to rebuild your marriage. It's never too late to rebuild your habits. It's never too late to start over in your relationships. It's never too late to rebuild your finances. It's just never too, too late for your heart to change. I don't care how long it's been this way, it's never too late. Will you reach out to them? Will you say, Lord, here am I, send them? Will you bring them to hear this message that is never too late? Because there are some people, if you don't go, there's nobody else going. So I pray you'll say these words. Repeat them after me like you mean them. Here am I. You didn't sound like you meant it. Here am I. Send me. When God, when, not if, but when he taps you on the shoulder, will you say, here am I. Send me. Would you stand and close your eyes and would you pray this prayer out loud to God? Here am I. Say it. Here am I. Send me. Say it again. Here am I. Send me. One more time. Say it quietly. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's sing this together.